because I want, you to, I want you to repeat this because I I want you to tell me why. Uh, why Louisiana is Why amazing. Louisianans are preternaturally gifted at politics. I really want to know. There's something about it. They're good. And it, and it is all of us, not just like the the politicians that you know of. It's not just right. the John Bros. Right. It's not just the Edwin Edwards, the Huey Longs, the, you know, James Carvilles. It's it's literally Eric Mary Go on. Jeff Fortenberry. <laughs> um, it is because where everybody else in the world divides into two kinds of people, okay. as a general rule, we divide into three. So the example is you've got your historically um, majority white Europeans, and then you have your descendants of African slaves, and then you have Creole people who are a blend of those plus indigenous people plus historic um uh uh african and people of color from the caribbean um and then our you know like our french people are divided into two groups the people who came from paris and were rich and powerful land, landed in new orleans the people who were expelled for being Catholic went to Canada, expelled for being Catholic, came to Louisiana. And so we have two different kinds of French people. And then there's a different kind of French people, which is our Haitians. So like in every case, and in order to win anything statewide in Louisiana, you have to get two out of three. You have to get North Louisiana, which is very much like Mississippi and Alabama. They have both religions. They're Methodist and Baptist. Um, and you have to get or you, you have to get New Orleans, which is its own magical place, much like the city in New York, where it is very different than the state. Or you have to get Cajun country and and sort of the the heritage french creole and cajun people uh well kind of from baton rouge to the west and then um and then baton rouge itself is a it, where our political capital is is all three of those people who come to lsu and then don't leave but they keep their roots wherever they were so I am from North Louisiana. I was born um, on a farm just a few miles in from Texas. So if I drink enough, then I start talking with an East Texas twang and people think that that's where I'm from. And, you know, my glasses own the table and, mm -hmm. you know, and and I love orange juice in the morning, um, which is and and. But I was raised in Baton Rouge, oh. which is very, you know, it has been called the vanilla of South Louisiana um, or the vanilla in the Neapolitan of South Louisiana. So uh, you've got a lot of flavor to the right, a lot of flavor to the left. And then Baton Rouge in the middle is kind of neutral ground. Um, wow. And wow. I was always a vanilla bean in the vanilla. I of. See. So Jeff Fortenberry grows out of um, the Catholic side of Baton Rouge, which is, is that like, well, I guess New Orleans is very Catholic too. So those are both Catholic towns, right? 
Baton Rouge. So. Everything, everything in the foot part of the boot is very Catholic. Everything in the leg part of the boot is very Methodist and Baptist. Um, we have a significant Jewish population. I noticed that. Like there's yeah. uh, friends of mine who are Jewish. I, it's over and over in my life. Uh, various friends we worked with and I did Monk Magazine, et cetera. Uh, Ellen Spiro is one example. Great documentarian. Um, she's She went to, you know, they're, they're, <clears throat> they're green wave people. I mean, that yeah. I don't understand why that's a Jewish school. Was it why is it because it's such a good academic school, maybe, but but no, it's um it's actually post-World War II. Um, the ship that happened to be in harbor closest in Germany that took uh the majority of the people released from concentration camps to America. So some of them went to France, some of them, you know, went to Eastern Europe. But the majority, a lot of them got put on a ship and brought to New Orleans. And there were four or five really powerful Jewish families in New Orleans at that point in time who essentially welcomed them in, set them up for shop, and created this not a pogrom, but a, a real vibrant Jewish culture. And Catholics and Jews are closer in my mind than Baptists are to Catholics Absolutely. when it comes. Like, it's very yeah. strange, like how so many of my friends, so many of my friends are either Jewish or Catholic, even though I was raised Catholic. I did live in New York a long time though. So that's part of it in LA, but, yeah. but in terms of just my outlook on life and what I think is important, it's just so interesting. Just the absolutely deep connection that, the Jewish people have, there's an affinity there. It's so interesting to watch. It's, it's just fantastic. I, I, um, but I didn't understand that about, um, I did, I forgot the so name. Let me go back to the, the Greenway go back to the, the school, the nickname for the. Tulane. Tulane. That's a Tulane. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Sorry. I'm, I'm going to know that I, I'm going to go to one other little piece of the why we're really good at politics. And it's mm. also why we have a very different way of thinking, I believe, than the rest of the South or the rest of the country. I mean, I joke that every state thinks it's unique. Louisiana actually is. And um, and in in all of the ways we are not like our neighbors and there are very few places that are like us. The reason we're so good at politics and um, and innovation in a different kind of way than other people is because we have regularly had to rely on just ourselves with very few resources um, in the face of disaster or or natural occurrences. So in the right. same way that you get Romanians who have very tight-knit communities because of their fortress castle system, which essentially is, we're going to be overrun with marauders. So we build one great big structure and every time we're overrun, everybody goes to that structure and we might as well use it for Christmas dinner and we might as well use it for, you know, the harvest time and we might as well use it for whatever else wow. in Louisiana. I mean, it was really funny here because when we had snowpocalypse before it, I went around and checked on all my neighbors 
and made sure they had everything they needed, told them to fill up their bathtubs with water because they didn't know to do that because nobody would ever told them to because Austin, Texas is Mecca and doesn't really have any, you know, real problems. And, um, and, and so I tell them this and then after the storm kind of blows through, I go around and check on all my neighbors and they're like, you're so neighborly. And I'm like, this is what you do. Like you have to, it's, it's, it's not a a good point, Stafford, because, you know, when I think about, I mean, just, I'm talking in a pedestrian way. When you think about what New Orleans uh, has to deal with just meteorologically, I mean, these intense storms that come up into the Gulf. And of course, I mean, this is like, I mean, and 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 the state is so critical to like, energy infrastructure in the country i mean i've driven by i mean to all infrastructure i mean the mississippi river is yeah it's all mississippi river which of course the mississippi river is 27 states and i tend to go from la to atlanta you have to go through us and for 50 percent of the year you basically can't get across the country without going through baton rouge right because there's snow in the north so all the trucks come across the south all the major increases because you know it's funny because when i did a cross-country tour i was in new york i bought a car and drove it down to florida and then across and i always go across through New Orleans. There's easier ways to go from New York. Obviously, you don't have to go to Florida. You don't have to go to New Orleans. But I'm going to L.A. But, um, you know, one time, I'll never forget this trip. I drove along the sort of the energy, the energy corridor there. And, you know, all the big companies are there. Anybody you could think, a big publicly traded company, they all have uh, a fortress, to use your Romanian example, a fortress, uh, you know, uh structure uh down there there's just so many of them and they're and they're so all-encompassing and you know i think about how 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 weather affects those companies because that's a big i guess it's a well i guess now with lng i think corpus christi is a big part of liquid natural gas but i think also there's a little bit of that going on south of uh, new orleans but also of course oil oil and the transportation of oil, the refining, I think, of of oil, but also the, um, and you could correct me on all that, but the- No, it's all correct. The other thing is, so that's key. Like, Like literally the price of oil can go way up. If there's a massive storm in New Orleans or in Southern Louisiana, I mean, it dramatically affects energy markets. It's It doesn't even- it doesn't even have to actually hit us. It has to threaten to hit us because there's it's it's essentially a four day process to shut down a refinery the best way. If we do it in two days, it's not the best way. And we can do it in about 12 hours. And then in order to turn it back on, it takes 10 days. So if we can shut it down for oh, in four wow. days, then it only takes 24 hours to turn it back on. Um, but, but so that means five days without oil being refined. Now, the interesting thing is when they hit us and then Houston, it essentially stops all oil refinery refining in North America because the Cameron highway, um, which most people don't know is the most important highway in America to sustain your quality of life. The Cameron Highway is a pipeline that runs along the continental shelf. So before you get to the deep water, 
this pipeline runs from the border at Texas and Louisiana to New Orleans following the continental shelf and all exploration in the Gulf of Mexico in one way or another pumps into the Cameron Highway in order to bring its oil in. And then it lands in New Orleans in Homa and goes up through pipelines to whatever refinery it is going to. But nobody builds their own pipeline to get oil out of the Gulf. And, and so all the refineries are connected to the Cameron Highway. And so if a hurricane is threatening anything from New Orleans to Homa, then they shut it down so no new oil can come in. And then depending on where they think it's going to go, they turn off refineries so that they don't have an event, which is what we call an explosion, um and uh and then to turn it back on is i mean that's after you repair anything so if there's any actual damage you got to repair the damage and then turn it on if there's no damage if it's not hit at all it still takes a process to turn it all back on that's which incredible is- because the well i know there are other refiners obviously there's refiners in the bay area and there's refiners probably in jersey i think and there's there's refiners across in the country. Pittsburgh is the only other place that refines any significant amount of oil um, into. So there are lots of gas refineries, mm-hmm. but but not oil refineries um, because because I they see. operate a little bit differently. And the majority of the country knows that they run off of natural gas for their heating and such mm-hmm. um but they don't really realize how important oil is in the same way they don't realize how important coal is to their lives when they want to talk about coal miners daughters it's you know? so true so back to our question and then we'll talk about other things the the um the way you've explained it to me is well, first of all i'll just say as a preface you know, I was a travel writer for a long time and I, I I lived all over the country and I had a magazine called Monk the Mobile Magazine and people in interviews and just, you know, people who met me would go, well, what are your, what's your favorite place to go? And instinctively, every single time I said, number one, New Orleans and yeah. Louisiana broadly. I always said, number one, New Orleans and South and East and West and whatever. And then secondly, I always say Santa Fe. Now it's funny, you and I met in Santa Fe because Santa Fe to me is the other kind of this incredibly, I just wrote a board member of St. John's today. You know, I defined for him kind of from what Harold Bloom said, you know, what is a, what is a great book, you know? And, um, mm-hmm. and he didn't like the film Mulholland Drive, which I studied this summer. Yeah. He's a, and you're, yeah, yeah. He's, he's a little conservative, but I said, you know, you know, here I said, here are the criteria we use at St. John's and Harold Bloom uses to ascertain what is, quote unquote, a great book or great film. Strange, difficult, new, rewards return engagement, multi-layered, ineffable, enduring, speaks to the ultimate questions of being human. And and I said, I also use the same criteria for what makes a great human being. In other words, like it challenges you, it kind of shakes you to your core not all books. I don't know if Jane Austen shakes me to my core, but she's great because there's, a, I mean, Harold Bloom talks about it. There's a kind of strangeness. It's uh, it's definitely indefinable in some way. And it rewards return engagement. That's Louisiana. Okay. That's Santa Fe. 
And that's what makes those places great. But I think even Louisiana is a little greater than Santa Fe. Santa Fe is interesting. Um, every time I go, it's really about watching the people who live there and how they behave and the way they maintain a certain, there's, there's obviously, you know, elements of dysfunction within Santa Fe and there's an upstairs downstairs quality to it and other problems, but, um, and there's an old kind of class of people that run the place. And if you're an outsider, you really can't break in very easily. Uh, Valerie Plain found it out, found that out. But um, I joke that there are only four cities in America. Everything else is a village surrounded by suburbs. And, and no way. So tell me, tell me, tell me what are the four? Cause I've got my, <laughs> I talk about this all the time. What are my, what are my, what are, I tell so, people the big cities. So my, my favorite. Or so my this, is, cities. this is not okay. necessarily the cities I love okay, or okay. the places I love most to visit, but there are only four actual cities in America and, and, and they are New York because it is a city, uh, Chicago, because it is a city, New Orleans, because it is a city, and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And people will argue all the time and say, LA is bigger. No, LA is a, seri- a collection of suburbs. Boston is a collection of suburbs. Houston is a collection of suburbs. Dallas is even a collection of neighborhoods that happen to be knitted together. And they have an a nice downtown, Miami, a collection of neighborhoods. Atlanta is really just suburbs. There isn't even a downtown suburb right, right. to be around right. as a thing. That's why it was so hard um, to figure out Atlanta. When I, and we never did an issue uh, about on it. I'm like, where, I don't get the there, there. I mean, where is it? And I, when I pull into it, I don't get it. It's not there. It's yeah. not there. That's why I ended up liking LA because it's so impenetrable. And what, you know, you can't, and that's why, I like Mulholland Drive because Mulholland Drive is the experience of being in LA. That's the point of that movie. It's not, I mean, one of the many, but it is like. That's why I don't like the movie because I don't like LA. Right. If you don't like LA, if you love LA, then you'll understand um, this uh, shaky ground uh, of Mulholland Drive and identity is not as fluid and. Uh, you're, you know, various people are versions of you. And it's very much, you know, reality and fiction blending all the time. It's like the only real, I mean, Santa Fe a little bit, but really it's about, it's not like it's magical realism in the sense of Columbia's cities, but it's more like, it's just fantasy and reality are always colliding. And people have such large expectations of all the good things that are going to happen to them when they go there. Now, I was not a film person or a TV person. So I went there just for practical reasons and I had no, no fantasy of being in the film business. So my experience, the heartache of LA um, as depicted in Mahon drive is, is it, I still had those experiences because there's so many people living in this kind of, um, Oh, I mean, I, I dated this crazy Permanent audition. Well, yeah. And, and, and beyond the film industry, there's just crazy cipher kind of uh, vampirish new age people everywhere and it's uh, also a transient place yeah that that, you know people come and then they go and then they come and so there's no making friends forever you think san francisco is a city i think san francisco so this is my criteria and it is only one thing um and, and i mean i guess it's kind of two things and i'll probably come up with a third by the end of it but but the first criteria is that you can get everywhere in the city without a car. Well, that's a true statement. Either 
Yeah. Which which there you can't there are lots of cities in America where you can't get everywhere unless you own a car. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's important is not just to be able to traverse the place you live. It's mm -hmm. to be able to mix with other people and to to literally know other people through transit daily that's commute. You're it's, so much it's more connected. You're yes, so you were... much more connected to people. In New York, I am so connected to people. Now, I grew to love L.A., and I know where to find people. You, you meet them at certain locations, and I'm sure that's true in all these suburban-type cities, is that you find your love or whatever your interests are in life, and then you meet people in those locations. Um, but you only meet people who you have something in common with. Right. And in a real city, you meet people who you have nothing in common with. So and true. that's important. The other thing that is very important to me in a city is that it is it is not a melting pot. It is what we in Louisiana call gumbo, mm -hmm. a stew. Where you can, so, you know, New York says it's a melting pot. It's not. It's a stew. It is literally where this place within the city is so distinctly different from another place that you could call it okra or you could call it a sausage or you could call it rice or you could call it a bean or whatever. And they're separate, but congealed together. And so that's super important to me because lots of cities like Dallas do, no longer have their individualized neighborhood personality based on restaurants or ethnicity or or mm. anything else at mm. all. Mm. And New Orleans has the Irish Channel and mm. Hungarian mm. settlement and, you mm. know, all of these things that keep a culture alive where mm. there are people in the city who don't leave their 20 block radius. That's a like, true statement. I mean, honestly, I, when I was in Chicago, after I left Northwestern, graduated, I lived there for two years and I I would go and I was a jogger then uh, and would go to a new ethnic enclave within Chicago and jog around it for like five miles just to see it, just get the vibe. Yeah. Of it. And then I'd go out to dinner and in one of the ethnic restaurants, whether it's Lithuanian or Polish, Ukrainian, whatever, and uh, or whatever, you name it. And um that was Chicago then. I'm not sure that's Chicago anymore, but you know, I'm not sure if there's that same people from a certain ethnic background staying in one location. Uh, I thought in the case of New Orleans um, that the Katrina, uh, I felt when I went back to visit it, I was a reporter for Forbes and then um, the city put on a, has this entrepreneur uh, festival every year or, or whatever it's called. It's like a competition. And I was the education person for Forbes for five and a half years. And so they wanted me to see all this. So you went to Idea Village's global entrepreneurship. That, week. that thing. Yeah. And it was extraordinarily impressive. And what they had done with these incredible Tim Williamson's a great salesman. My lord, they did so much of these. I mean, I, he introduced me to all the CEOs and all the incubators and all this stuff. I mean, it was like a little Silicon Valley. And the people, it was just phenomenal. And I loved it. And um, so, but my feeling was uh, as good as that was kind of post Katrina, like the funkiness of New Orleans, I was feeling like, God, it's almost like 
New York after 9-11, having been in New York before 9-11 and written about it and lived there, those were seminal events like Katrina and 9-11. And New York never fully recovered from 9-11. There was sort of um, just a zombie-like quality at times in the city. And I'm not saying that was, that was not true of my experience in New Orleans, but it's sort of like, yeah, all everything being new and clean and modern um, took something away. Uh, but maybe it just, it's now resuscitated and come back to its old form. I don't know. I'd like to know. It's not its old form. It's it's a new form for sure. So so where do you live? I live in um, uh, what the Buddhists call uh, the state of, of emptiness, which is Omaha, Nebraska. So That's if you can amazing in the nothingness that is Omaha, uh, a beautiful nothingness, uh, you know, you're, you're not accosted on the street. Uh, there's no homeless you run into. There's a few places where there's actual criminal activity, uh, but it's very, very minor. Uh, so there's very little homeless. There's very little anything that will jar you. Um, you can live safely. You can live calmly. And that's its plus and that's its minus. <laughs> yeah. My, um... so but I, I travel everywhere. I'm mostly in... Um, I mean, I, I I only came here. I read it. I bought this house just as a place to stay when I would visit two weeks out of the year from L.A. or New York. I was in L.A. New York most of my life, and and so I kept the house and and then I I rented out on Airbnb or whatever. And then um, and then I was poached, which is what launched this discussion. I was poached by uh, a Texan whose dad was the head of Ways and Means. Um, his name is Ren Archer. He's an Dr. Ren Archer. He's an OBGYN and he's a former head of the Texas Department of Health. And he, um, and because Fort Murray is a very high ranking, he needed a pretty um, sophisticated uh, chief. And so Ren was hired by Jeff. No, Ren was hired. I didn't know that this whole scandal thing was happening because it just wasn't public, <laughs> wasn't talked about in the office. I didn't know anything about it. And, uh, you know, looking back, Ren was hired, um, you know, after a kind of mass exodus from the office. I never understood why, but I think it, I don't know if that was anything, to, if, if, if that had leaked out to the staff, I don't know. But the point, point is, is that Ren was an incredibly smart, effective advocate. And um, he just, all the great healthcare bills that Fortenberry got passed, which is so hard to get bills passed in Congress, I mean, mm -hmm. it is enormous work. And that's, again, to the point, like, we had a super smart Texan uh, doctor who ran a giant mega, you know, uh, giant uh, mega, not mega lith, but just a mega institution was the Texas Department of Health, which is, you know, an unwieldy beast. And he ran that. And so to have that guy and with his dad's pedigree, pushing healthcare policy in Congress. I mean, these guys got so much done. It was insane. And not just on healthcare, but on conservation, on national security. And the state of Nebraska, they're they're kind of, they're not the show me state attitude of Missouri, but they're very stoic. And they're kind of everything just kind of predictable, normal. And we had as a representative in this state, and this is something people just do not grasp. I'm not sure they're capacious enough to grasp it, but we had a guy from Louisiana, so this is my point, who had migrated from Louisiana to Nebraska, 
which is like saying, you know, you're a te- you're a basketball team in Iowa City, and Michael Jordan in his prime has decided to go and play for you. Like right. a Louisiana politician trained in that that gumbo, as you call it, was such a gift to the state of Nebraska. Like to have a guy who knew how to work with people to get things done was it's just a gift. And Jeff was really good at that. And um, and then and then ran because Texas is a country, you know, it's not a yeah. And so if you are working at the high levels of Texas, it's kind of it is training ground to run the country of the United States because it's like, well, you, you've run this big mass of land with these disparate populations. Yeah. Kind of bodacious attitude of everybody. I mean, if you can manage that, you can manage um, the country. And so what a great combination were, were, was Ren. It turns out they're related. Um, Ren, Ren is related to, to Jeff's wife, Celeste. But the two were really good. And so I came in as like the spokesperson for these great works of legislative art that these two were creating. And the world knows nothing about it. And I tried my best to get the word out. But they just, in Nebraska... They're just that's the problem with Nebraska. They are not very creative and they're not very imaginative. And they don't <laughs> understand when they've got what they don't understand greatness. That's why I read you my description of the great books and great films. Like if you don't have the ability to grasp greatness in film or books, then you will not be able to grasp greatness in human beings when they appear because they'll strike you as weird or um different and not not predictable not easily digestible so you know they got rid of jeff you know the the powers to be in the state just got rid of him and and they've lost a great man and they just put somebody who's super boring uh in his place who's not imaginative and god bless him so let me put give you a, a metaphor story that a friend of mine gave um my friend courtney asperdite so she lived in baton rouge part of the year and she lived in santa fe part of the year and she was like this amazing former lawyer turned earth mother stay-at-home mom homeschooling her kids like all of the recycling and granola crunchiness of the world and i met her in 1997 and um and I, I kept asking Courtney, like, why do you come back to Baton Rouge, you know, from Santa Fe? How can you do that? Right. Like Baton Rouge is so vanilla in comparison. And I mean, I get that Philip has business here and he needs to do some things here, but how do you live with it, basically? And and what she said is when I'm in Santa Fe, it's like being in a field of wildflowers. They're all beautiful and amazing and fantastic. And it is very easy for them to grow. But when I come to Louisiana, it is like being in a Walmart parking lot with a crack where some amazing flower has been able to seed and grow. And that flower has more fortitude and determination and magic in it than the whole field of wildflowers in Louis- in Santa Fe. So it's like I come to Louisiana because when I find a unique and interesting person 
here, you know, when I find somebody who wants to recycle enough that they bundle up their stuff, that they put it in their trunk and drive it to the recycling place, because we didn't have curbside recycling at the time, you know, she's like, they're really committed to it. They're not just going along with what everybody else oh my God, does so true. in this place. That's so true. That's what drew me to actually Los Angeles, because uh, Los Angeles, I came there and lived, moved there after the riots and uh, LA was the most hated place on earth. There's no question. Like right. nobody had Why can't we all get along? No, nobody, <laughs> nobody could say a, a nice thing about LA. And that's when Jim Crotty enters the fray usually because yeah. I'm a natural criminal defense attorney. And I'm thinking, even at this late age, I'm thinking, you know, the one thing I didn't do in my life that is really calls to my heart is to represent people that nobody likes or that they think right. are guilty or like i i'm such the a underdog stickler for the person yeah. nobody likes and or few few like or, or at least there's a group of people who don't like them or him or it or her and um and then they i'm just like they deserve their day in court and so la deserved its day in court i mean la was so hated in like 1993 94 the riots the whole it was just Nobody liked this place. And when you visit it, you know, you kind of understand it's kind of it's got moments of real beauty. And then it is just really ugly. Like some of these nobody puts any attention into the look of things. And it's just ugh. and then the smog and just the this the ugh, the overall. ugh, it's just too much. You know, Western Avenue is just a disaster. And. And I just grew to love it. I just said, you know what? I'm going to find that wildflower in the Walmart parking lot. I didn't yeah. know your story then, but I, I wrote a piece called 33 Reasons I Love LA. It got syndicated everywhere. And it was from Monk Magazine, but it got everywhere. And it's like, you know, people, it took a long time, but people started to see, wow, there is some magic here. And now the city, unfortunately, is completely is getting completely gentrified. But because it's so spread out, um it's really hard to gentrify it fully because it's hard to it's just hard it's just it just slips away from you and um that i don't normally like places that are sprawled out but la is the exception it has a kind of um you uh, david lynch you know wrote has spoken about this and the reason he lives in la is because you know he can be anonymous in la yeah that's a true i get statement. that you know but yeah. anyway, I get I get this. So I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. We're going to end this initial discussion. I'm going to stop the recording because if you don't mind, I'm gonna, I've started this podcast. I think there's like three listeners to it, and maybe maybe after today there'll be four or five because I think I'll get Jeff Borton very hopefully to listen to it. Uh, but uh, I'm going to say I'm going to make this an official podcast. So I've just been talking to um, to Stafford, who is from Covale. Tell me a little bit about you before we end. Uh, I should do that at the beginning if he was going to make this a show, but we're going to have we're going to say who you are at the end because we're going to we're upsetting the dynamic of uh, of a normal podcast here. So I think you, it's actually you more important. Stafford would at the end because I don't awesome. do the editing. I just like here it is. Boom! It just goes up. There's no editing. So I, I love it. With Stafford Wood. Uh, yeah, so I, I think it's actually an important philosophical thing to introduce at the end, because 
if you really care about ideas and you believe in the equity of man, then then it doesn't matter who the idea comes from. You should be judging the idea, not basing the validity of the idea on the background of the person who is saying the thing like this is real. Right. Um, I think that we should have a podcast that's just you and me talking no, really, for like, really. like, yeah. like, like uh, six I, times. Course, only, only problem is I think about five or 10 people might care, but we'll see. Maybe we'll get some good results. You never, you never know. So I'm Stafford Wood. I'm the president and founder of Covalent Logic, Ooh. a corporate communications firm. Uh, we have offices in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Houston, Texas, Austin, Texas, and we serve clients kind of all over the U.S. and sometimes all over the world. We focus on mergers, acquisitions, transitions, and crisis because those are the times when uh, a healthy functioning company needs extra support and a dysfunctional company needs someone to help navigate the waters um, for how to talk to internal and external audiences about the changes that you are making in your world. Unbelievable um, put, Stafford. I mean, you know, uh, in this phase of our discussion today, I am so... Um, you know, it's funny because your background in Louisiana and neighboring Texas, obviously you in the water, you, as we discussed already, you have the gift of, uh, of, of, of the Louisiana ability to be great at the game of politics. But as we've discussed, it's the gumbo, like you are experiencing living where you live so many different cultures that also are uh you know they're not balkanized there because it is a gumbo it's not like they're separate separated uh but we have these same cultures across the country and the ability to work um i saw this with jeff fortenberry i saw this with ren archer a texan in louisiana and ren has roots in louisiana so maybe it all does come back to louisiana when i think about it because their ability to talk to different groups of people who are very, very different from them with uh, respect, compassion, um, interest, genuine interest, was just remarkable. And uh, that's the key to politics. That's the key to success. So I'm sure you do very well in what you do. Thank you, Stafford Wood. More to come. Well, thank you, Jim. I'll talk to you again soon. Okay. No, 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 um, no, we're not doing that. And we're stopping the show. Thanks, everybody. We're stopping the recording. I think we're stopping the recording. That's what I hope we're doing. I don't know if we, um, I, I think we're not going to be, how am I going to do it? I got to be able to, I think I could do it. I could figure out how to stop the recording, but not stop the Zoom call. That's the key question. How do I do that? Pause recording, stop recording.